Man, what an honor to be back with you. I have been highly anticipating uh, today and the opportunity to tackle this subject with you. I, I want to say, as a commend to you, I, I really felt honored to be a part of the series that was really derived from the questions of the people. So I feel like you kind of welcomed me in this weekend, and I just want to say thank you for allowing me to do so. But we do get to tackle a really um, easy subject in a broken and fallen world. We're going to talk about trust today. And so... How many of you have trust issues? Oh, come on, let's be honest. Hey, you've heard my story. You know I have daddy issues. So when you have daddy issues, you got trust issues. So let's, let's look at uh, what the Lord has for us today. Uh, from the wisest man who ever lived, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Solomon said this. And I know that many of us have heard this, but I believe that it's unfortunately um, been preached as if it's just the choir to receive it. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Just that statement. Just start right there. We do that every day, don't we? Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in every single way in your life, acknowledge Him and He'll direct your paths. Who here does that every day? Right? We have heard this, but I want to say before we even get started, if you came here today looking for a quick fix, when you're dealing with trust, there are is no quick fix. There are no quick fixes. It's a process. There are no quick fixes. In fact, it goes on to say this in verse 7 of that same, of that same uh, passage, Proverbs 3. It says, do not be wise in your own eyes. It's very important that we acknowledge God. So, um, how many of you, uh, you've already said you've got some trust issues. How many of you would admit that uh, you worry? Any chronic worriers? Okay, what's the worst thing you can say to someone who chronically worries? Don't worry, right? It's like, oh yeah, let me just click that off for a second. Let me just turn that on. Here I go. The same is true for trust. How many people have ever looked at you and said, just trust me? I would if I could, you know? I would. So I want to say, how many of you have also heard, never pray for patience? God's not going to just hand you patience. Like, He's not just going to hand you trust. He's going to give you opportunity to exercise patience, and He's going to give you opportunity to cultivate trust. Okay? Two great questions came out of this topic of trust. I want to read them to you. They are, where's the line between thinking the best of someone and then safeguarding yourself from those likely to take advantage of you? The second, is it ever wrong to distrust someone based solely on a hunch? Two really good questions that deal with the issue of uh, motive and discernment. And I would really like to quote him quite a bit today, the wisest man who ever lived, but I want to look at supernaturally just how wise Solomon was. So while you're turning to 1 Kings 3, I want to ask a question. I want to ask a question as we open this passage. Here's my question to you. Is your hunch rooted in a check from the Spirit of God that resides within you? Did that did that hunch come from the Lord, or is it rooted in self-preservation? Is it rooted in the opportunity to protect myself? Because I believe in boundary. Boundary is evident throughout Scripture. It started there. How many of you remember the Garden of Eden? These questions are about boundary, all right? It's great. Remember the Garden of Eden, that you can eat of any tree, all the fruit of these trees here in this garden. There's no death, there's no poison, there's no harm. Eat of all of them, except for this one that'll be harmful for you. Because perfect love comes with boundary. And perfect love 
Perfect love comes with boundaries to protect us. You don't let a three-year-old play in an interstate, right? Because it would be dangerous for them, but you might let them run free to roam and explore in a field. So let me be clear. The unconditional love of God created boundary for us to be safe. And the wisest man who ever lived learned that. Here's what he learned. In the time that we're flipping to, there's been a secession. There's been a coronation, and there's a new king. His name is Solomon. The most important thing Solomon will accomplish during his reign here as, as king is that he is going to reestablish the temple in Jerusalem where its sacrifice continues. So worship will regain, re, uh, will rehappen in Jerusalem in the temple. But that time has not come yet. It's not happened. It's still early in his reign. And so they are having to worship in all the high places. One of those high places is Gibeon. And it says that one night Solomon went to Gibeon and he offered a thousand burnt offerings that night to the Lord. And then the Lord appeared to him. And here's what the Lord said. He appeared to Solomon there at Gibeon and he said, Ask, what shall I give you? Hey, how many of you have ever treated uh, God like Santa Claus? How many of you would love to have God look at you and go, Hey, what do you want? Anything you ask, right? Okay, that actually happened for Solomon. And Solomon responds with this really important response. In verse 6, it says, Solomon said, You've shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth, he walked before you in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. This is not on the screen. You're going to need to write this down. How many of you want the great mercy of the one true God in your life? Hands a little higher. Wake up. There we go. I need the great mercy of God in my life. But he says, I learned from my father, the greatest king who has ever lived to this date. He had his mistakes, but he's still the only person that you ever said had a heart just like yours. He said he always sought your truth over his own way. He always sought your ways over his own will. And he always did it humbly. Before we look at just how wise Solomon was, and we look at just the wisdom that was imparted on him. Can I ask you another question? Do you trust God's truths more than you do your instincts? Because we have no authority outside of the counsel of the Word of God. It is sufficient, and God has given it that we might know how to navigate this life, a broken and skeptical world. Do you trust God's truths more than you do your own instincts? Solomon goes before the Lord humbly, and he says, I know how my father did it. In verse 7, now the Lord, O Lord my God, we're just setting the stage, we're getting into it. Now, Lord my God, you've made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am just a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to be counted. Those two statements are very important because neither one of them are entirely true. When Solomon took the throne, he was 20 years old. In Jewish culture, he had been a man for seven, eight years by now. He was not a child. What he was saying was, I am overwhelmed. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. God, I'm inadequate. I'm unqualified. I don't know what I'm doing. The people at that time had been counted. The men in Israel had been counted, and we know that by census, over 800,000 fighting men, men of fighting age, were in Israel at that time. And we know that over 500,000 men were in Judah at that time who were of fighting age. 
understanding that we didn't count women or children in the culture at this time, and we would not have included the number of the elders of Israel in that number either. It is estimated that the population of Israel at this time as a nation was over 4 million. That's more than twice the number of people who walked in as the chosen of God into Canaan. They've exploded, and they just gave the keys to this kingdom to a 20-year-old. And he says, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't want to mess up. My father was so good. Not only is the opportunity overwhelming, I'm following him, and I don't know how to fill his shoes. Can I throw out a statement for you? Something you need to write down? Here it is. If you want trust, transparency is inevitable. If you, transparency leads to trust. Transparency leads to trust. And right here, Solomon is being transparent before his God, and he's being humble before his God, and here's what happens. Verse 9. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding, a heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? We have gathered in this place, and we sang some songs, probably with some great words. We've prayed some prayers, and we have even had a time of offering. What do we call this? It's a W word. What do we call this? Say it loud. What do we call this? Worship. Worship is something that we don't just do here on Sunday mornings. We should be doing in every opportunity we face in life, every day of our life. Every opportunity is an opportunity to worship. Worshiping defined is simply this, seeking to make God smile. Let me give you like a, a real Cliff Notes, layman's terms, seeking to make God smile. Listen to this in verse 10. This speech pleased the Lord. What speech? God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in over my head. Please, I know that you appoint leadership. I know that you gave me the job. And I can't do the job without you. I'm so unqualified, and this seems such a large task. Please, Show me how to do this job and do it right by you. This speech pleased the Lord. God will give grace to the humble and he'll what? Resist the proud. It says that when God said to him, verse 11, because you've asked for this thing and not asked for a long life for yourself, nor asked for riches for yourself, nor asked for the lives of your enemies, but you've asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I've done according to all your words. And see, I've given you a wisdom and an understanding heart so that there has not been anyone before you that is like you, nor will there be one that will rise after you as wise. But I also gave you what you didn't ask for. I've given you a wise and discerning heart, but I've also given you riches and honors so much so that the other kingdoms will look at you in reverence. And if you'll just keep my commandments and walk in my statutes as you just told me you understand your father did, he passed that on to you. And if you'll just walk like he did, with a humble heart, seeking my truth, seeking my way, I'll give you a long life. It's a pretty awesome conversation with the Lord, isn't it? He walks away from there, goes back to Jerusalem, goes to the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was said to be, and he offered a sacrifice there, burnt offering unto God as peace, and then threw a feast for the people. And in verse 16, we see this supernatural wisdom that was imparted on Solomon on display. Let me read those questions again. I want you to listen for your answers. Is it ever wrong to distrust someone based solely on a hunch? 
Where's the line between thinking the best of someone and then safeguarding yourself from those likely to take advantage of you? Verse 16. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened on the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were there, and no one was with us except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died because she laid upon him at night. So she arose in the middle of the night, took my son from my side while your maidservant slept, and laid her laid him in her bosom. And then she took the dead child and placed him in mine. And when I rose the next morning to nurse my son, after examining him, I realized the dead child was not the one that I had born. And it says, then the second harlot spoke up and said, no, 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 the living one is mine, the dead one's hers. And they bickered back and forth before the king. And it says, the king said, bring me a sword, verse 24. So they brought him a sword before the king. And he said, divide the living child into two. Give one half to one, one half to the other. And then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king so that she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh my Lord, give the living child to her. By no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. So the king answered, give the first woman the living child. By no means kill him. She is his mother. All of Israel revered the supernatural wisdom that had been put on Solomon as they caught word of what had taken place. What does the Bible say? If you want to know what to do, kill a baby. Right? That's what it says? No. What it's saying is this child never had threat of being harmed. This child never had a threat of being harmed because Solomon himself had a hunch that came from the Lord. He had asked for supernatural wisdom and the Lord came to him. But he needed to verify, he needed to verify his hunch. Listen to me, write this down. Trust, yet verify. Trust, yet verify. How was he going to verify? He had two unsavory citizens before him, two harlots. These are, not, these are not the people who normally show up in the royal courts in the presence of the king. Two unsavory citizens who both have a story, who both are demanding justice, and both are asking the king, the king to fix their problem. And isn't it always this way? Someone, due to their, either their lack of planning or their inability to deal with their swirling circumstances, expects the hearer to take on their crisis. Hello, you're a part of the church today, right? That happens more to the church than probably anyone else today. Hello? Someone's lack of planning or their inability to deal with their circumstances is not the church's crisis. However, the church is expected to turn to God's Word and to trust God's truths over their own instincts in order to know how to discern wisdom and to impart grace. So, what does he say? He leads these women to understand something that they otherwise wouldn't have gone to there, gotten to a place themselves. How many of you, if you would just be honest, I need hands high, if you're given the opportunity, like me, you'll choose the path of least resistance every time. He says, I love you enough to be honest with you. You need to find someone in your life that's going to love you enough to be honest with you. Maybe that's an elder, maybe that's a a life group leader, maybe that's an accountability partner, but someone who's going to lead you to the place of the worst case scenario in your mind. 
so that you won't choose the, least, the path of least resistance. He pushes them all the way there. What happens if this baby dies? He knows the love of an unconditional mother would never let that happen. The truth was going to come out if the worst case scenario could be presented. She was going to say, even if I have to sacrifice my own relationship to my son, let him live. Do not harm the child. Even if I have to give up my son so that life can happen. That sound familiar? Even if I have to give up my son so that life can happen, let the baby live. Hey, look, sometimes you've got to have people who will walk with you through life. That's why we were, we were created for community. We're going to look at that in a moment. We weren't created to be islands unto ourselves, isolated, stiff-arming the rest of the world because it's skeptical and it hurts and it wants to take advantage of you. That, that is true. That's the world we were born into. Hey, that was the fall of man. That's sin. But that's no way to live. You are called to walk with others and you need someone in your life who's going to take you to the place that could present the worst case scenario in your mind so that you can realize even at the end of that worst case scenario, God is still God. Listen, so what if he walks out? Hey, you may lose that job. God forbid she may die. Is God still God if that takes place? Is He still sovereign? Does He still love you and use Romans 8? Does He still use all things for the glory of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes? Will He use it for your good? Is God still God even if it looks the most dark? And we need to be able to have people in our lives that will love us enough to show us, hey, that could happen and God will still be God. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to knock him off his throne. Hey, what? It's not going to surprise him, catch him off guard. He'll still be God and he'll still love you. Listen to this. He'll still love you more than you love you. And you love you. It's a question of discernment and motive. There were two motives here. There was one that was motivated by love. There was one that was motivated by misery. And to be able to see those, he had to present an opportunity. Hey, have you ever met someone who's miserable? You ever met someone that is hurting and they don't care? All they want is everyone else to hurt with them. They're hurting and they want everyone else to suffer with them. They want to see the world burn because of their hurt. And let me be honest. Let me read this question again. I want you to hear it so that you can understand where I'm going here. Where's the line between thinking the best of someone and then safeguarding yourself from someone else? We wouldn't ask that question unless we'd already been burned. Hands raised. How many of you have been burned? Nice and high. We need to see this. We've already been burned. So how do, we, how do we do it again? Listen, you cannot crucify your present or future relationships for the sins of, your, of someone against you in the past. Hello? Sometimes in order to trust, forgiveness is in order. If you can't forgive the sins of those who have sinned against you in the past and you're going to continue to hold on to those and hold a grudge, then you're going to crucify your, ple- your present and future relationships. 
In fact, in Matthew 18, a passage, we've, we looked at the wisest king to ever live in Solomon. I'm going to quote a few things from him in a moment. But I want you to see what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. Under the one true king, there are five discourses in the book of Matthew. The fourth one is called the discourse on the church or the discourse on how the community is to instruct and operate itself. And it's one chapter. It's Matthew 18. You see, it says this, As Jesus told Peter, if a brother sin against you 70 times, seven a day, it comes back asking for forgiveness later that day, we should still forgive. If a person repeatedly betrays our trust unrepentantly, we're not commanded to continue to associate with him. Let me say that again. If someone's burned you repeatedly, you're not commanded to continue to associate or make yourself vulnerable to him any longer. Forgiveness takes one. We're not talking about reconciliation. That takes two. Here, hello? Reconciliation takes two. Forgiveness is on you and it's on me. If we're going to trust others, we've got to forgive. But let's learn from Solomon. Trust, but because we've been burned, verify. Cut a baby. Just kidding. <laughs> the Bible is clear. That we should forgive those who are sorry for the hurts they've caused us. Even when those hurts are from betrayal or exploited trust. Jesus made this point with Peter and he emphasized this lesson with the parable of the servant. Let me read it to you. Now, I want to be clear. Everything I'm reading is in red letters. This is an interpretation. It's not for you to discern whether you're okay to do this or not. We're not off the hook. This is Jesus. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when they had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Ten thousand talents was a life debt. It would never be paid off in this lifetime. A life debt. Ten thousand talents. But he was not able to pay. He couldn't. So his master commanded him be sold with his wife and children into slavery with all they had till that payment be made. What that means? They were going to be slaves forever. And it says, The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me till I can pay you all that I owe. It says, Then the master, the king of the servant, was moved with compassion. He released him. And forgave him the entire debt. But the servant went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a hundred denarii. That equates to two months' salary. Two months' salary. And he laid his hands on him, put his hands around his throat, and he said, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet, begged him, said, Have patience with me till I can pay you all that I owe. But he would not. He went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had happened, they were grieved. And they came to, to the master, told him all that had happened. And the master came after him. He said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt, a life debt, because you begged me. Should you not also have even more compassion on a fellow servant who owes you far less? His master was angry, delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father will also do to each of you from his heart who does not forgive his brother his sins. 
Listen. <laughs> a life debt has been imparted. A life debt has been given. Today we'll come to the table and we are to come to this table and do so in remembrance of the life debt that was imparted on each of us. It was His body that had to be broken. It was His blood that had to be spared. It was His blood that could atone for us that we might have life. So who are we to hold grudges against those who owe us far less? You've been forgiven for every debt you owed God in your entirety. Who are you to hold a grudge against those who might have, might have slandered your name, might have criticized, might have put you through a little bit? And hey, listen, they may be in this room. They may be a part of God's church. They may have hurt you. Listen, God says you have a responsibility to forgive them, to learn from this opportunity, and to move forward. He says that you, if you desire to be someone who can trust others, then you better be someone who is trustworthy. As we learn to trust others, we should strive to be trustworthy ourselves. This is good and godly. These are all quotes from Solomon. Here it is. We should be a safe place for others, Proverbs 3. The wisest man who ever lived, Proverbs 3.29. Keep confidences, Proverbs 11.13. We should be known for our honesty, Proverbs 12.22. A willingness to suffer with a friend, Proverbs 17.17. 17. Everyone goes through hard times. We need our friendships even more when the sun is not shining. At times, we're going to let others down, but we should always strive to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we have been called. With all humility all gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, as Paul told us in Ephesians 4. Bearing with one another in love. Listen to me. I want you to clue in right here, right now. In this room, I have no time to have you turn to your brother or your sister, confess your sins one to another, hug it out, and then move on. I don't have time for that right now. This room is never going to create an atmosphere that's going to give you that opportunity. But it gives us an opportunity to look at the truth, examine the truth, and then take it on. You know the place that does give you that opportunity? Life group. Listen, I walk into churches all across the country, and I'm going to tell you there's a vast difference between a church that just offers groups or there's a church that, that is built up of groups because there's trust that's been cultivated through those groups. When a group recognizes, when a church recognizes that my church isn't as much the big gathering as it is that smaller gathering in that living room where I'm able to be myself. I'm able to be vulnerable. I'm able to share and let others be, tr uh, let me be trusted. Let me be trustworthy. They share with me. We're able to bear with one another. I can just be myself and it's okay. Everyone do this right here, right now with me. Do this. Doesn't that feel good? That's life group. That's what that's supposed to be, a place of respite. A place where you can come in and say, hey, guess what? I don't think anyone knows this, but I'm not perfect. And guess what? I don't know if you know this, but I've got trust issues. And I'm working on it. It's a process. I've got to grow through it. And I can't be someone who just turns out of my own instinct and stiff arms everyone. 
That's what the enemy wants from me. He wants to isolate me. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy from me. You are my community. You are my body. You are my church. I need a place where I can just be transparent so that trust can be built, so that trust can be cultivated, so that I can take opportunity to trust you and forgive you for where you burned me in the past and ask forgiveness for where I burned you. I want to look at another discourse. It's still under that theme of kingdom. But I want to tell you, Matthew 5 and 7, if you've ever wondered, I want to study the Bible. I'm not sure where to start. Please study here. Go here first. I've heard preachers try to preach this stuff away. They go, look, it's too difficult. There's no way God expects this of you. Listen to me. The words I'm about to read to you are also in red, red letters. Those are direct quotes of Jesus put down for you. You cannot do that to Jesus. Hello? You cannot try to preach away the things that he expects of us. Are you listening? They're very difficult. So anyone who says, hey, try Jesus, it's easier. That's a lie. <laughs> Let me be very clear with you. In the 40s, there was a, an author who was quoted. He was an atheist. He said, the one thing that distinguishes Christianity from everything else in the world are three words that Jesus said in Matthew 5. Love thy enemy. He says in Matthew 5, 38, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, listen to this, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Wait, what? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you, take away your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Let him borrow from you. Don't turn away. Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And he tells us how, three ways. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who will spitefully use you, persecute you. Wow. Bless those, bless those who curse you. Be an intentional blessing in the life of someone who may genuinely have it out for you. Think of your office. Anybody know someone who's gotten ahead on the backs of others? Anyone been that back? Bless those who cursed you. Do good. Seek opportunity to genuinely do acts of kindness and service to those who hate you, that may be against you. Seek to do good for them. Get to know them. Don't run away. Get to know them and seek to do good by them, that they might have hope. Again, he didn't say, reconciliation here he's saying forgiveness you may not open your heart to them vulnerably because they burned you before again but he is still saying serve them and lastly gosh listen this one's so hard pray for those who will spitefully and intentionally use you anyone have that raise your hand know someone who is spitefully and intentionally Come against you, use you, pray for those. Ask God, the God of heaven, the, the one true God, to intentionally intervene and shower grace and mercy and blessing upon the one that plans to steal from you.
God, shower blessing on the second harlot who stole my living baby while I slept. Hello? God, I want you to bless her so that my baby can live and exceed, live a life abundant. If you desire for her to have my child, so be it, bless it. Do you understand how difficult this is? Do you understand that we don't have an opportunity because of how difficult the words of Jesus are in our lives? We really don't have time to worry about who might be trying to get one over on us. Do you understand? Hey, uh, where's the line between thinking the best of someone is safeguarding yourself and those trying to take advantage of you? Doesn't matter. What's Jesus say? It doesn't matter. You're too busy trying to love your enemy. You're too busy trying to pray and bless those who are trying to steal from you. You focus on that and trust me, I love you more than, than you love you. I paid for you on the cross. I've been fighting for you ever since. How many of you want God fighting your battles? I want to tell you just how difficult it is. I walked into seminary and I walked into class one day. It was a preaching class. There were 60 students in that class. I walked in one day. It was a little different than usual. There were 10 polygraph machines set up at the front of the class with 10 names in each, in front of, uh, one in front of each. And sure enough, I walked over to my polygraph. I got fitted and adjusted as 50 of my co-divinity students sat and watched me. He asked a few questions, our professor, just to make sure things were working right. But he did the entire exercise to ask one question. One. Do you gentlemen so pray that your ministry would suffer so that your brother on your rights ministry would benefit and be a blessing far larger than yours to this world? What? Do you so pray that your ministry suffer so that their ministry be a blessing? Not one brother, myself included, spoke up. But sweat beads are rolling, collars are getting hot, and needles are doing this. <laughs> hey, divinity students can't even do this. Not without supernatural intervention. Not without wisdom that comes solely from the Father. And it only happens when we are transparent and say, I don't know what I'm doing. I need you. I don't want to stiff arm people. You told me not to do that. But how do I welcome in when I've been burned? How do I put myself out there again? Trust, yet verify. I'm going to seek your truth, not my own instinct. I'm going to walk in your ways, as hard as that is. And I'm going to do so with a humble heart because I don't know what I'm doing. We are called to give up our lives like he did for us. Let me recap before I close us. We have to ask ourselves when we're trying to discern what to do with letting someone in. Is this reservation that I have from the Spirit or is it rooted in my own self-preservation? Two. Sometimes in order to get the truth, I have to allow myself to go all the way there. 
I've got to let myself go to the worst case possible scenario so the truth will come out because in the end, God is still God. And do I really trust Him with my life over me trying to white-knuckle my existence? Thirdly, motive. God's looking at the heart. We've got to check our agenda in order to join Him in His will. And that's a huge statement. Jesus is commanding us to love more than we have a capacity for. We don't have time to worry about whether or not we'll be taken advantage of. And let me be clear. We cannot do this alone. Everybody here heard it, so everybody's accountable, and no one can do it in this room. It's got to be done in smaller segments. Acts 1.8. The last words of Jesus before he ascended to go back to be with the Father after the resurrection. The last words to his church were this. You'll be my witnesses unto Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all ends of the earth. Let me be really clear about one word. The translation's not that good. That word witnesses, that's not an accurate translation. The better translation is the word martyr. Let me say it again. You will be those willing to die to yourself. Die physically if you have to. So that the good news and the hope of the gospel and what was done for you on the cross so that you could live forever and the world around you that is broken and skeptical just like you are could have hope. Do not resist an evil person. You take that message to the rest of your city to bordering cities and states, and to all ends of the earth. We are far too busy trying to just live up to that call, to worry or take time to think about who might be getting one over on us. We cannot, we cannot have a present or future relationship if we've not forgiven those who have burned us in the past. 